Good evening, uh, good morning, wherever you are. I welcome you to Radio Evolve, our international webcast for consciousness and culture. I'm happy to have with you here again from Colombia, Joe Brewer. Joe, welcome to Radio Evolve. It's lovely to be here again with you, Thomas. Thank you for having me. Joe, uh, as I told you just before uh, our last conversation, uh, was very rich for me and I took a lot of uh, what you brought this and uh, I had a lot of conversation following up from your insights. Uh, that is one of the reasons why I'm really glad to have you here again on the show. Uh, just for people who don't know who you are, you are a complexity researcher, innovation strategist, experience designer, social, serious social entrepreneur, and uh, you have uh, created, amongst any, many other things, an undergraduate degree program in Earth Systems, Environment, and Society at the University in Illinois. You worked also amongst other places for the International Center of Earth Simulation in Geneva, 2010 to 11, to help um, to uh, simulate holistic Earth dynamics. The reason why I invited you is uh, we are in a meta crisis, a crisis where several many crises are coming together. Of course, uh, overall, uh, there is still the climate crisis. The climate collapse hasn't gone anywhere. There is uh, the, the COVID crisis. There is an emerging social crisis uh, that we are just in the beginning of, and I, I think the crisis is still to come. And the question right now, it seems that um, since the COVID crisis, something fundamentally has changed. And we are still in the process of finding out what has changed, or if it's even true that something fundamentally has changed. And I would like to ask you, what are your perspectives on this combination of crisis? How, do, would, you, how would you assess where we are right now as a global society? And yeah, very simply put, where to go from here? I know a huge question, but I'm sure uh, we find our way through this question somehow, and I'm sure we won't be able to answer it all, but I'm very curious to hear your perspectives. So thank yeah, you. I think the question is appropriate because the scale of our challenge requires us to have thinking at the same scale. So the question is very well put. And one thing I want to say is that while it feels like a lot has changed, there's something very important that hasn't. And that is that humans have had a process that I call runaway cultural evolution. That I, mean, I tell the story as going back three million years. And so it's really has reached a new level since the industrial revolution and into the 20th century. But what we're seeing now with these disruptions and crises is a completely um, predictable and understandable set of consequences to that globalized pattern. So the environmentalists back in the 1960s and 70s talking about overconsumption and overpopulation, um, for example, uh, the peak oil conversation that goes back to a similar time frame, that everything that is happening now has been predicted and goes back decades. The limits to growth study in the early 1970s painted a scenario that was not a prediction. It was a scenario, the business as usual scenario. But we are living at that scenario with disturbing accuracy. 
And so there's something to be said about what hasn't changed, which is there is a deeply destabilizing and systemic pattern of human cultural evolution on the planet. So what we're seeing with the COVID um, uh, pandemic, for example, is a completely predictable consequence of disrupted ecosystems and of globalized supply chains, international airports, and high population density cities. You put those together and you're going to get a pandemic, it's guaranteed to happen. You can't predict when, but you can predict that it will and that it must happen because of the connectivity and because of the disruptions to the ecosystems. And this is knowledge that goes back decades. So the idea that something has fundamentally changed is true in one way, but so much has not changed that we need to recognize. The thing that has changed is that the various systems of distraction have been able to keep people from seeing the truth until now, which is that all of this that I said hasn't changed has always been true, but people's experience has allowed them to ignore it and pretend it's not true. And what's changed is people can no longer ignore reality. And this makes me think of a very commonly misunderstood word, the word apocalypse. Mm -hmm. If you go back to the ancient Greek use, use of the word apocalypse, apocalypse is the time when the veil becomes thin and things that were delusional or that were people living in fantasies, the consequences would become so close to their real lives that they could not ignore it any longer. And they could only see the truth as it is. An apocalypse is a time when consequences make the truth apparent. And we're definitely in a time of apocalypse by this definition. Now, one thing I think is really important is that human psychology did not evolve in this kind of apocalypse. So most of us are caught up and overwhelmed by the complexity of what I consider to be symptoms. Like all of the people four years ago who were talking about Trump winning the presidency in the U.S. or the Brexit vote in the U.K., all the people talking about COVID now are being pulled into a system of distraction that pulls on their emotions. And because there's so much money invested in propaganda, so much militarization of information, that it's a weaponized space. So a lot of people are caught up in discussions and debates at a superficial level. And what that means is, they spend all of their time following the complexity of that information mm-hmm. instead of making the time to do what's actually needed, which is to prepare for what is coming. To prepare for what's coming with this larger pattern, which is related to climate change, population overshoot, overconsumption, and the unraveling of the Earth's biosphere. And so what I think we need to talk about now is the thing that has changed. Mm-hmm. which I'll, I'll describe in two parts. Part one is what I already said, that the veil has been lifted. It's like there was a fog and no one could see the shape of the mountains that were right in front of them. And maybe if they were in a boat, they're coming close to crashing into the cliff. And now they can't avoid seeing that they're caught in the tidal currents and they're going to hit the cliff. And that truth is becoming apparent to a lot of people. Um, the other thing that's changing is that there is a breakdown, a collapse of the global system that is removing constraint. It is making it possible to do things more deeply different than before. Mm -hmm. And probably our best opportunities have to do with some of the worst places where this is happening. 
The globalized financial system is primarily a speculative economy, and the speculative bubble is waiting to burst. And so the financial system is on the verge of collapse. That's actually a really good thing because almost all of that money is debt. And debt translates in practical terms to people doing things now to pay their bills instead of doing what is actually important to do now. They go to a shitty bullshit job instead of taking care of their children. Or they spend all of their time worrying about a problem now instead of educating themselves for what they need to know how to do in the future or things like this. The second thing that's going to happen really soon and is already starting is disruptions to supply chains, which creates an incredible opportunity. Because if you can no longer get all of your stuff produced in factories in China using coal power plants, then you have to learn how to produce it locally or you have to learn how to do without. Then you have a lot of people simplifying their lives and creating local economies, which is exactly what we need people to do. But it can't happen when this globalized system makes it so difficult to stop using globalized supply chains. So they actually have to break before we can leave them. And so the the situation that we're in is one where if we can step away from debt obligations and create alternative local currencies to use different money that's not tied to that global system, and as we are all having less mobility right now in our homes, we can start to practice relocalizing our lives with our purchases, with our productive activities. We might start growing food in our backyard, for example, um, which makes food pretty local. Um, that this pattern of relocalizing is a huge opportunity that is only possible when the global system collapses because most of us go to corporate jobs to serve the global system, to pay off globalized debt relationships. And so... I think a lot of people are talking about this as what to do about the pandemic. Mm-hmm. But the honest assessment of what's happening is the planet has something like HIV. There's an immune deficiency disorder where the natural self-regulating patterns of the earth, which are measured in the climate system, when they lose the ability to self-regulate because of human activities, that means human activities are attacking the self-regulating patterns of the earth the human culture is behaving like an immune disorder. The problem with immune disorders is that the body sends its energy and nutrients in the form of platelets, antibodies that it generates. It basically tries to deal with wherever the pain is. But what we have to learn to do is resist that programming and instead go to where the life is which is go to the places where there's still water moving through the soil, animals moving across landscapes, people living off the land, and then learning how to reintegrate ourselves into landscapes again. Mm-hmm. And that's something we can elaborate on through the rest of the conversation. But I hope this begins to set some context. Yeah. I understand, and I also understand that, uh, that you're pointing out this is the place uh, where to go now. But isn't it also uh, there's a danger... You, you, You're talking about the weaponization of information. And at the same time, um, we enter a situation where we are not probably not entering an economic crisis, but an economic depression, uh, like 1929, where a lot of people will be put a lot of existential pressure. And usually that does not help us to evolve and have a bigger perspective, but usually uh, it's 
pushes us to have uh, to look for simple solutions. So the, com- the combination of that, uh, there is a chance that uh, the conversation will also not evolve but devolve in in this situation. First, do you see this uh, danger? Uh, do you uh, see ways how to avoid this danger and how to respond to this? Yes. First of all, we can't avoid it. It's already happening and it's going to continue. So we need to practice emotionally managing the trauma that it generates to watch that happen. Just like when we watch fascist dictators come to power, we can easily get sucked into the emotional anguish. And we need to build empathy barriers, basically a membrane of protection, so that we can remain compassionate. If you're compassionate while watching suffering, you become traumatized by the suffering. There's a name for this. It's called compassion fatigue or uh, vicarious traumatization is another name for it. Mm -hmm. And so we need to protect ourselves against that so that we can continue to love, which is also how we don't fall into the fear response. But we have to do this because the majority of people won't. So it's not our job to keep the majority of people from doing this. This is our own responsibility. Because from this place, we will have better discernment and sense-making and better capacity to do long-term uh, planning and action. And our communities, everywhere we live, communities need people doing this. So we have a responsibility to do this for our communities and for ourselves. The other thing is um, the way to do the strategic work is to remember something really fundamental that is so easily forgotten which is that our bodies as human beings, we are animated dust moved around by water. We are the earth made conscious. Just think of it biologically. Mm-hmm. Your body forms in a, a liquid vessel in the womb, in the placenta, which is an ocean birth inside of a mammalian body. Mm-hmm. And you go from a water birth of nutrients aggregating, which all come from the earth, to becoming an animate, thinking, feeling, and moving organism that is animated dust moved around by water. Why is this important? Because our most important job right now is to restore life to landscapes. Mm-hmm. And I can go into why that's the case yeah. um, by talking about the planetary boundaries framework. So for the listeners who aren't familiar, there's a group called the Stockholm Resilience Center based in Stockholm. That's a network of Earth system scientists. These people are not quacks or on the fringes. These are mainstream Earth system scientists Mm -hmm. who have been asking the question, what are the key processes of the Earth system that if they go beyond some threshold, the human experiment becomes forfeit? It's no longer possible to have a globalized system. Globalized civilization goes away. They identified nine planetary boundaries This work goes back almost 15 years. I think their first publication was 2007. And in 2011, they asked the question, okay, if there are nine of them, have we crossed any? How many have we crossed? The answer was, we've crossed at least four. I mean, and if you cross even one, globalized, uh, the globalized system is an overshoot and collapse. So we are technically an overshoot and collapse. Of the four that we crossed, Listen to them and you'll see how they relate to each other. The number one most important one is is called biosphere integrity, which is just the, the extinction rate of species going extinct, loss of biodiversity. 
The second most significant one is chemical cycling of nitrogen and phosphorus, which is chemical fertilizers for industrial agriculture. The third one is called land system change, which is taking intact ecosystems and simplifying them, cutting down a forest and putting in a farm, paving over the farm and making a city, all the ways we degrade landscapes. Number four is climate change. So the four that we have crossed are all related to how humans manage the land. Because when we destroy those ecosystems and simplify them, land system mm-hmm. change, the direct result is bio- biodiversity loss. Mm-hmm. We do that so that we can spread chemicals across the thing because as we're killing the systems, live, living properties, we have to boost it with synthetic fertilizers, which is poisoning all of our waterways. And all of this, what are the two main drivers of climate change? Fossil fuels and land use patterns like deforestation. Mm-hmm. And so the fossil fuels we use to cut down those trees and dig out and cut off the tops of those mountains, to synthesize and produce those chemicals, to deliver them by transport, to grow our food, that whole integrated pattern is what's causing the destabilization. And it's all grounded in the management of landscapes. So if we change the way we manage landscapes, we can change all of them at the same time. We can work to bring forests back, to store water effectively in the ground, to have food production that doesn't use synthetic fertilizers, and all the while building up carbon that is embodied in the ground and in those ecosystems, which pulls it out of the atmosphere. So all four of those key problems are related to the management of land. So I'm not just saying this as like, go back to the land and grow your own food to survive. Mm-hmm. What I'm saying is take a holistic, ecological point of view of what a healthy landscape is and integrate your entire life into it. Mm-hmm. And to the extent that you do that, you will become part of healing the earth rather than destroying it mm-hmm. in the midst of this collapse pattern. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Listen to you. Uh, uh, something came to my mind uh, because what, what you were bringing was in the midst of the conversation uh, uh, before COVID-19 hit us as a global event. We were very aware that there is a climate change crisis and the climate change crisis was the main conversation. The conversation has shifted right now. Fridays for Future movement is not in the headlines of any media right now. We are talking healthcare systems. We are talking virus pandemic management. And we are talking about an unbelievable economic breakdown. You were saying... Uh, this landscape managing is a response to all of that. But uh, is there a way uh, to find a communication where this can be linked up? Because as the conversation goes right now, it's not linked up at all. And it seems there is an overlay of of conversations. uh, And I don't know if if this is an overlay for the next two weeks, for the next two months or the next two years that uh, seems to prevent us to look what the root source, even of, uh, uh, as you de- described, that if, even the pandemic has an ecologic foundation, if you look carefully. But this is not the conversation right now. Uh, there is also a crisis that is in, in, in the midst or even at the center of this crisis, which is the crisis of meaning-making. 
mm. a, a crisis of meaning making, which is also related to the breakdown of the meaning making systems of um, modernity since the Second World War. Uh, the, the big media houses, uh, the big media companies, the social media reality, the vi- viral reality, the viral uh, reality of communication and also of meaning making. In this crisis of, of meaning making, how do we find a path for the conversations that are important? Something that I want to talk about here that's really important to learn about for other reasons has yeah. this specific application as well. What I want to talk about is permaculture. Uh-huh. Because if you go back to the writings of Bill Mollison and others who, David Holmgren and others, you know, that cr- help create this idea of permaculture, which is basically indigenous land management rediscovered and reinvented. Mm-hmm. And permaculture, as the founders would say, permaculture is not a set of practices. It's an ethic. And the ethic is to stop, center yourself, observe the patterns of life around you from the awareness of that, of watching the patterns, you start to open up your emotional connections to them. You mm-hmm. start to care about them. Mm-hmm. And then from that place of caring, somewhere, whether it's dated or not, is a feeling of the sacred. Mm-hmm. And from that place of the feeling of the sacred and being aware of the patterns of life, you can then begin to live in an ethical way related to it, which is what permaculture is. Permaculture is that way of living ethically in the context of feeling yourself as part of a living system. Mm-hmm. Why is this important now? Because the response to the pandemic is embedded in all of the layers of meaning making that you just described. Social media, uh, corporate media companies, um, weaponized propaganda, the um, kind of neolithic and ancestral emotional responses humans have. We didn't evolve in this kind of information context, so we're not very good at making sense within it, you know, and, and so on, right? That if we can slow down and pay attention to what is immediately around our bodies, what is in the place around us, then we'll start to notice where there is life and where there is not. So I'm going to make this concrete for you because um, my family has moved to Colombia. We've been here about six months now. And I want to explain why we moved here so you can see that we were doing exactly this kind of sense-making before the pandemic. Mm -hmm. So my wife and I have a daughter that's three and a half years old. When our daughter was born, we we started a process of moving away from expensive places to less expensive places Mm -hmm. so that we didn't depend on money as much. So we moved from Seattle to Eugene, Oregon, and then eventually to Costa Rica to live off-grid in an eco-hotel and and um, agroforestry project. And now we're living in Colombia in the Andes, so in the northern mountains of Colombia, in a small village that's pretty remote. The nearest airport is four hours away. Why did we come here? We came here because this is a place that more than 40 years ago, they cut down all the trees, 98% deforested. The tropical dry forest, which is a type of biome that's on the verge of extinction, because every tropical dry forest on Earth is more than 90% destroyed. These tend to be places with really high rates of what's called endemism, which means more than half of all species in the place only exist in that place. When you destroy them, you destroy global biodiversity. 
because it doesn't exist anywhere else. The pattern became cut down all the trees, which then disrupts the hydrological cycle, and now this place is becoming a desert. So why would we move to a remote place that's becoming a desert where the landscape is destroyed? Mm-hmm. The reason is that in this village of Barichara, there's about 5,000 people living in it, there is a community-managed project that's on six and a half hectares of land, so around 12 acres, that is um, owned by 40 families and a cooperative, and they set it up as a community food forest. Or they're beginning reforestation, and children have been coming and learning about how to how to grow native forests, and it's right on the edge of town. And there's a family here that has small children that started in Escuela del Bosque, a forest school. Mm-hmm. And we wanted to raise our daughter learning these practices, so we came here to build a life of landscape regeneration as we raise our child. So we picked a place that was disconnected enough from the global system that if the global system breaks, we could do our work in relative isolation. Mm -hmm. And our work is to bring the landscape back to life. Mm -hmm. Now, when the pandemic hit, because of this place being so beautiful and remote, has a strong culture of local craftsmanship, it's a tourist destination. So Mm -hmm. tourism stopped and the local economy immediately collapsed. The response to the pandemic was to destroy the local economy immediately. They turned off tourism. That's 40% of the revenue or more for this place. All the hotels and restaurants shut down and the town just, the economy disappeared. And in a matter of a week, it was gone. And because of delayed um, recovery effects, it's going to be one to two years minimum before the tourism could come back here. So our biggest problem is not that tourism went away. Our biggest problem is that we don't have enough water and there's no longer topsoil. And so if we can't depend on the globalized economy, we don't have enough capacity to grow food here or to have drinking water. Mm -hmm. So our real problem is water and food security. Mm -hmm. Everyone in the town is talking about tourism. And so right here is the meaning-making problem. See, it's right here. Look around the landscape. You'll see there's not enough water. We're now rationing water to three days a week for three hours at a time from the public utility that provides water that is not safe to drink and everyone filters it in their homes to make it drinkable. Mm-hmm. Everyone complains about the water. We all know the water is problem number one. But you have to stop and look around to see that everyone is concerned about the water and the water is the real problem. Mm-hmm. So so this way of stopping and listening and paying attention to the living system around us, it will immediately tell us the truth, immediately. And that's what we all need to do to see what needs to come from here. I, I, I'm very struck by what you said because uh, I, my question was um, a question about um, the global meaning crisis. And it's, it's, of course, related to global communication, uh, a global e- e- economy, uh, yeah, and the global me- media rea- reality. And uh, you went to permaculture. And uh, and you went with permaculture, uh, also describing uh, how, uh, the, uh, how the pandemic uh, hit you in your village in a way which made obvious that the primary... Uh, a problem is not tourism, but the water. And what I uh, what I hear from uh, what I hear from you, the way I understand you, is a 
very different um, a relationship to reality on all dimensions, on the dimension of soil, on the dimension of community, uh, on the dimension, uh, dimension of uh, media and, uh, and global realities in a way uh, that are, is exemplified by permaculture, which is an appreciation of life systems, uh, also understanding, uh, bringing back to what you said before, that we are uh, uh, moving dust, by, uh, uh, mo- moving dust m- moved by water, and, and appreciating this earthbound reality or roots that we are and come from, and that everything comes down to in the end. In a, mo- a moment of crisis uh, also creates this reality in a way that you otherwise easily forget that in the end, it's about your relationship to soil, food, water, uh, earth, sun, uh, what is the foundation of everything. It's also the foundation of, of global media in the end. But the permaculture approach that you are that you're talking uh, is a uh, is an approach where we have a sensitivity of the reality of life and how life uh, is also related. Uh, uh, this is the other part that you brought into landscape because we are embedded in landscapes and and our sensitivity for this, how we relate to environment, to landscape, landscapes relate to landscape, is something that we don't control and we cannot manage on a global scale. It's a very different, completely different mindset than the modernist mindset where we find, for example, now programs to globally fight the pandemics with vaccination or something like that. It is an appreciation of, um, let's call it the a permacultural reality of life on all levels, not just the soil mm-hmm. level. And if I understand you right, uh, appreciating this is also where we have to go to find answers how to uh, overcome and go through this crisis. Is this kind of the direction that you are going? Because I, I, I see a very different picture arising when I just follow you with this, uh, let's put it very simplified, a permaculture somehow is also the answer in a way of different looking at reality in a permaculture way. Yeah, I think you've described it really well because what happens when we start to become sensitized to our immediate context, we're going back to something very ancient. And, you know, William James in 1890 wrote a paper, for those who don't know, William James is considered to be one of the founders of psychology as a science like making psychology scientific. And he's a, a, also a founder of the field of phenomenology and philosophy. So a very important historical thinker. Um, and what William James wrote about in 1890 was how the nervous system and the brain and nerves and spinal cord of vertebrates with uh, those that have brains, how they gain the ability to modify their behavior by changing which information comes into their body. And they can change which information comes in by changing their behavior. So mm-hmm. there's this interesting set of feedbacks of what information I take in changes my behavior, but then as I relate to that information, I change my behavior, which then alters the kind of information that I can mm-hmm. take in. So here we're talking almost one and a half centuries ago is a pattern of all living systems. That mm-hmm. information flows through an organism by taking in information and having a behavioral response. And then having a way of using the behavioral response and the information to create a feedback loop to then learn. So learning mm-hmm. becomes the pattern of changing the behavior based on what happened in a previous feedback loop. Mm-hmm. This became the foundation of behaviorism 
in the mid-20th century in psychology. And um, so you can see this is a really foundational idea. When we take that idea and, and connect it with what we were talking about with permaculture, what we see is that we realign our behavior so that we take in different information. And by taking in the different information, we alter the landscape of possible behaviors because our behavior response arc is now different. So it's very important to center ourselves and be calm and have an openness. Receptivity is a really important word here. We have to open mm -hmm. our receivers. And then we have to take the time to make sense of what we see. Like, is water scarcity really a problem where I live? Or is it not? So, for example, there's a pattern I've been watching because I studied atmospheric science a long time ago where we're living is on the top of a plateau. The plateau is deforested. There are rivers on three sides. The biggest river is to our west. From that river, there's a mountain range that makes enough clouds that there's a tropical rainforest on the other side. Mm -hmm. We're in what's called the rain shadow. All of the rain falls on the other side and the dry air comes over. And we're in the place where there's no longer moisture. The mountain lifted it and used it up. But at the river, in the bottom of the valley, there's moisture. So sometimes in the early morning, I go up on the plateau and look over the cliff, and I see a line of fog that forms directly over the river. And then it starts to make a cycle, a circular pattern vertically that lifts it and pushes it out mm -hmm. and brings that water up to the cliff and up to the top of the plateau. And the whole thing lasts about an hour. Mm -hmm. doesn't happen very often. But when I see it, what I'm noticing is it's not that we don't have water. It's that we don't have connective patterns of water. This landscape is drying out because the relationship between the mountain and the valley and the river and the clouds and the forest that used to be here, those connections are broken. Mm -hmm. There is enough water here. But it's not being circulated well. And so I have to look at these systemic patterns to be able to see what to do. So it's not just about being aware that there's water scarcity in the town. It's also the ability to, to go slow enough We've been here six months, and I've seen this fog pattern three times. Mm -hmm. It's probably happened more, but there have been three times that I've gone out in the morning and seen it. it. took me six months to see it three times. So I'm taking my time. I'm going slowly. I'm mm -hmm. learning how to bring the water back into the land, which will probably take me 10 years. Mm -hmm. Because that 10 years isn't just observing it conceptually. I'll be able to start experimenting soon. Mm -hmm. I see a pattern. Is that pattern real? Let me take an action and see if the pattern responds. And so I have to co-create with life, and that takes time. Mm -hmm. So this way of slowing down and making sense of things differently, it changes sense. It changes meaning around what is the real problem, but it also completely changes the learning process. Say say more. How how does it change the learning process? Well, I'll show you two things because I'm sitting next to them and it's good to have visual examples. Um, the listeners won't be able to see this, but right here is the vining of a maracuya, which is the uh, the passion mm -hmm. fruit. You'll notice it doesn't have any leaves on it. Mm -hmm. That's because there's a type of caterpillar, there's actually one down here in the bottom, that form into butterflies and they've been eating up all of the, the leaves. So I could have removed the caterpillars or poisoned them or done something because mm -hmm. I like to eat passion mm -hmm. fruit. But instead, I'm watching the pattern because I want to understand how the life system of that butterfly works. Mm -hmm. So by not taking action, I'm able to see. 
And then right next to it here, this is a type of tree that my wife is cultivating. It's a native tree called Karakoli, is the local name. It's related to cashew. The cashew nut grows from trees like this. And there are some of these trees around, and my wife has gone and gathered the seeds, watching when they fall, and then went online and started researching how to cultivate them, and we're growing some karakolis. Mm-hmm. So we're growing native trees. So while we're not choosing to stop destruction, we're letting mm-hmm. the, the, the caterpillars eat our passion fruit. Right next to it, you know, 10 centimeters, 20 centimeters away, is a thriving baby native tree that these butterflies, these caterpillars are not touching. Mm-hmm. So you see how much I'm, I'm learning by not intervening. Mm-hmm. If I had intervened, I would have disrupted their behavior and then I wouldn't mm-hmm. understand them. Yeah. And so course, there's this very different way of learning. Yeah. It, of course, you're talking about agriculture here and permaculture uh, is a primary uh, agricultural model. But what you are talking about also is a different way of relating. Yeah. And this different way of relating are, uh, is a different way of how we grow our gardens and how we grow our fruits. But it's also a different way how we relate to uh, our environment as a whole, including uh, our industry, including our social relationships. And uh, the, the difference that I hear you is a, is a difference of... Um, in relationship, looking for, let's say, supporting patterns mm-hmm. and uh, being very aware of life, how life forms and uh, be uh, in collaboration with life versus an engineering consciousness that tries to uh, basically have a concept uh, uh, like with, with your little tree, where, of course, uh, uh, there are many ways, basically, how to get rid of a caterpillar. Uh, and uh, to some degree it works, but uh, as I understand you, there are underlying ways how we deal with the globe ongoingly since centuries that creates uh, maybe uh, a, a field where we don't have caterpillars anymore and we grow the fruits, but we uh, but the price that we have to pay is uh, is mounting up. And part of the ecological crisis that you're describing uh, when you were describing the study before is related to this particular relationship that you showed in your garden. But we are not only living in our garden, but we're living basically on this whole globe. And uh, uh, is this the, the, the difference uh, that you're uh, describing and also how um, we can see with all the culmination of crisis a very different relationship, how we in the end, uh, relate to Earth as a whole, and with Earth, of course, meaning society, meaning our social realities, meaning our political, meaning our uh, financial realities, but also seeing this as being part of this Earth reality that we have created. Yeah, what I see is um, something inevitable happened that most of us aren't ready to accept. And the thing that was inevitable uh, I'm going to go back a bit in history and then I'll come back to answer your question with the story. Is, um, humans s- separated from our other primate ancestors about six million years ago. So if you look at humans and chimpanzees, for example, we share a common ancestor six or seven million years ago. And then a, a new pathway of evolution emerged. Several hominids came into being. All of them have gone extinct except for us. Now we are the last of that little branching. 
so Homo habilis, Australopithecus, Boisei, and so on. There are all these that are that are extinct related species. On that path, something happened, which is somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 or 400,000 years ago, fairly recently in evolutionary time, our species gained what they call anatomically modern status, the ability to have symbolic representation of the world. So this is when you start to see ceremonial burial of our own dead, um, symbolic art, and things like this. What's interesting is all of that archaeological evidence of ceremonial uh, burial and symbolic art, all of it happened during the last ice age. The last ice age started roughly 150,000 years ago and ended roughly 10,000 years ago. So when we had the first evidence of anatomically modern humans that were culturally sophisticated, mm-hmm. then we have our first warm period after an ice age. And what happens? Agriculture, city-states, empires, civilizations, and eventually an emergent globalized system. Mm-hmm. So the story has been one that there are all these indigenous groups and there are these couple of pathological cultures. And what, maybe the Western civilization model is particularly bad. but the number of civilizations and empires that have formed during this 10,000-year period, there are almost 300 of them. There's a project called CSHAT World History Data Bank that uses 291. So they've gathered all the, uh, all the data into one place. So there are many of them, hundreds of them. The, this warm period for humans meant that some subset of our cultures would do this. And that subset would come to subsume and destroy the others until we get what we have now. So that tells us there's a type of pattern level inevitability that human culture would would create this openness in its own evolutionary space mm-hmm. to create a globalized pattern of destabilization, which mm-hmm. has two outcomes. Either we go extinct with the pattern of destabilization, mm-hmm. or we reintegrate ourselves with this cultural ability, mm-hmm. which is we become indigenous in a new way. Because mm-hmm. this isn't it's not the same as being indigenous before, mm-hmm. but it is indigenous again. So now I'll come back to your question of how this engineering mindset relates to this co-creating with the living systems. A lot of indigenous cultures have spiritual education to teach them how to be in right relationship with the rest of life. The river is sacred. These are the religious ceremonies we do to honor the sacred spirit of the river. And then from that becomes functional behaviors that are cooperative with life. Mm -hmm. And the cultures that do that become sustainable cultures. Well, right now we're in a time that's unprecedented because we just had this explosion of civilization mindsets and civilization models for the last 7,000 years or so. And they have now culminated in a globalized pattern that brought the Holocene to an end. Mm -hmm. And we no longer know if civilization is even possible because we're no longer in the Holocene and they've only existed in the Holocene. So coming back to this mindset of cooperating with living systems in this moment is becoming indigenous while having the ability to hold what we've learned from science and engineering. Mm -hmm. Because engineering, for example, once you've identified a problem and know it's an important problem, engineering is really useful for solving it. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have the right ethical relationship to the living system you're a part of, then your engineering mind will find the wrong problem. And so there's still a place for that engineering mindset, Mm -hmm. but it needs to be embedded within a larger ethic, Mm -hmm. a ethic that encompasses it. 
like building a bridge requires the physics to work. Your material, mm-hmm. your materials need to be strong enough. They mm-hmm. need to have tensile strength, you know, just mm-hmm. as an example. Uh, that engineering part still needs to be there. Mm-hmm. But the ethic of whether or not to put a bridge there and how to build it is a different yeah. story entirely. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I very much appreciate your answer uh, because basically you're reframing my question. Uh, because I, I, I built this dichotomy between uh, this collaborative uh, way and this engineer way. But basically what, what you're saying with re-indigenization is that uh, we have to use what we have to develop in this 10,000 years. Uh, let, let's call it uh, this engineer capacity, uh, which our uh, rational mind has developed, which has developed basically what our human culture obviously is. But it has to be embedded in something that we have forgotten in the meantime and that indigenous cultures still have. And this brings us back to what you call permaculture. This uh, brings us back what you call uh, uh, embedding us in landscapes and uh, finding this different relationship to life. And maybe uh, the punch point of this crisis is that we have reached a point where our engineer mind, without being re-embedded in our life realities, basically goes self-destruct. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And let me just um, give a functional definition of indigenous, because it's not normally explained this way, and I think it needs to be. To be indigenous is to have an entire life system that is integrated into a landscape where their relationships are understood to be kinship relationships. Mm -hmm. So the bird is part of the family. The river is part of the family. We're all family. What's interesting is biology has confirmed this. There's one level of life and we're all kin. We're Mm -hmm. all related. So it's actually completely consistent with science to do this. But to have a, a life system that is embedded in a landscape means things like circulatory flow of materials that you know, I'm sitting in a house that is constructed from dirt and clay together with a type of sugarcane called kanyas, which is similar to bamboo. And this is a house that is a passive house design at the equator. You don't need air conditioning. You don't need heating. It's climately appropriate to this place, all made from local materials. And so you think about the material flows of the house. They actually dig up the rock where the house is and then use that rock to build the house. It's on site as much as possible. And so using this way of thinking, you can see that this is an indigenous way of building a house. And so it's this embeddedness in the landscape that makes it indigenous. Let's, as we are uh, also coming to the end of our time, let's come back to uh, the culmination of crisis that we're in. And, uh, the COVID crisis kind of bringing it somehow to a point and to a halt. And if I understand you right, uh, the right conversation is right now to see how the culmination of crisis is showing us how we have to re-embed ourselves in, uh, let's call it uh, the family of life, to use uh, uh, the picture that, that, that you just brought in. And that the right conversation to have right now is just to face that and to see how, for example, how we deal with uh, the virus crisis, how we will deal with financial crisis, how we will deal with the social uh, economic crisis. In, in the end, 
is embedded in the life systems in a way that's much more fundamental than we usually think about and how a mindset of permaculture that basically is just uh, also uh, embracing the collaborative reality of life and 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 how 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 life is not something that can be constructed in a way but it 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 is it's always working in a collaborative way anyway in any kind of landscape that we are that this is the conversation that also finds the answer of the whole set of crises that we're in at this moment yeah and the other thing to say about this that builds on everything you just said is we go to the degraded places to bring life back so my family moved to a place that is becoming desert because all the trees were cut down and we're growing native trees. And our main purpose in growing these trees is not actually to regrow the forest. Mm -hmm. It's to create social norms for our daughter and for the other children in this town, Mm -hmm. for them to see that the grown-ups bring the forest back. Mm -hmm. One of our goals, and this is something, just if anyone listening is a parent, has has children, imagine this. My wife and I have, have two goals for our daughter's upbringing. We want our daughter to believe it's completely normal to bring a forest back to life. And we want, during our, our daughter's childhood, we want her to experience a dead river coming back to life because humans stewarded it. So that by the time she's, instead of graduating high school and says, I did well in chemistry, I got A's in calculus, she says, I know how to bring rivers back to life. And this is something that is entirely possible. There are actually lots of examples of large-scale ecological restoration. Now go watch the video on YouTube, Regreening the Desert, about the work of John Liu, and you'll see examples, several examples of it. So it's completely possible to do, but it's also completely outside of most people's imagination. They have to bring it into their imagination because most parents don't know that they could teach their children how to bring a river back to life. It just happens that we notice, so that's what we're doing. Yeah. And... uh... I think it's also quite obvious how this is a lesson uh, that is a lesson for us to learn right now out of many reasons in, in many different dimensions. So uh, thank you so much for this conversation. It's an honor and a pleasure.